So, just to give you a little bit of a map of what we're about to do, because I tend to kind of stick to just one section, but today, this story has um, very, very strong echoes of the Old Testament. And so much so that it's almost as if to be reading it as a, as a Jew, as a, one of the disciples, you would have been picturing and imagining things that happened in Israel's history. And so why did Jesus take the disciples up this mountain is, is a very important uh, question to ask. And, and not, not only so, that this, this story is, is kind of the pivot point in the, in the Gospel of Matthew where, where things begin to change and, and then Jesus is, sets his eyes on Jerusalem and, and he knows he's going to enter the temple and he knows he's going to be crucified. And, and the disciples are just starting to kind of understand who Jesus really is. And it's in this moment where they realize Jesus' true identity. It's taken them this long to realize it. And as the story goes on, we realize that even after that, they don't completely understand it. Um, and, and it's, it, the story is meant to draw us in to, 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 so that you and I can, can kind of relate. Because throughout our lives, we have these ideas of God that maybe we learn in Sabbath school as, as, as children or, or just growing up. And somehow, throughout your lifetime, there are situations and moments that, that begin to challenge that idea or image that we have of God. And God is, is a God who, who wants to reveal himself continually to us so that we, don't, we, can't, we can't ever say we know everything about God. And so when I read the Bible and, we're, and I think about this story, one thing stands out. And that is that God, he's been trying to reveal himself to humanity ever since the very beginning, right? God struggles to do this, uh, mostly because humans, we have a hard time accepting God, uh, trying to understand God, and, and just in general, just following God. And so the story of the transfiguration is, a, is, is central to the gospel, it is what some people have called the peak or the apex of the story of God's revelation. See, God at some point realized that even the messages of the prophets didn't convey his character to the full extent. So we get bits and pieces of God in these writings. And, and at other times, we get what seem to be contradictions. And they can potentially skew and, and twist and distort the image of God in our minds. And so God has this solution. He sends his own son, a human named Jesus of Nazareth, the anointed, the Messiah. So this story of the transfiguration is, is what I consider a better retelling, almost a correction of sorts, of God's revelation to humanity. It's an improved version of a story we find in Exodus chapter 24. So... I want us to look together at this story in Exodus 24. So if you have your Bibles, go ahead and open up to Exodus 24, and I will begin reading from uh, verse 12. So Exodus 24, verse 12. Now, for some context, 
At this point in Exodus, God has brought the people out of Egypt and he's brought them to Mount Sinai. And he has made a covenant with his people, a promise that he would be their God and they would be his people. And so at this point, they're camped around this mountain. Moses and, and, and several, about 70 elders of the people go up this mountain along with Joshua. And in verse 12, God speaks to Moses and he says, the, the, the Bible in, in, in verse 12 says, The Lord said to Moses, come up to me on this mountain and wait there. And I will give you the tablets of stone with the law and the commandment which I have written for their instruction. So Moses set out with his assistant Joshua, and Moses went up into the mountain of God. To the elders he said, Wait here for us until we come to you again, for Aaron and Hur are with you. Whoever has a dispute may go to them. And then Moses went up on the mountain, and the cloud covered the mountain. The glory of the Lord settled on Mount Sinai, and the cloud covered it for six days. On the seventh day, he called to Moses out of the cloud. Now, the appearance of the glory of the Lord was like a devouring fire on top of this mountain in the sight of all of the people of Israel. And Moses entered this cloud and went up on the mountain. Moses was on the mountain for 40 days and 40 nights. See, at first, the, the glory of God is, is stunning. Right? A devouring fire on top of a mountain. God's presence seems to always be denoted by fire. We have a burning bush. We have, a, we have a, a, this, this, this fire on top of the mountain. There's the steady flame of the candles that, that are in the sanctuary. And, and last but not least, we have the tongues that appear to be made out of fire that rest above the heads of the early believers that followed Jesus. Now, our God is a fire. He makes his servants flames of fire, says the author of Hebrews. But back to the story. It's, it's striking because at this moment when Moses receives the Ten Commandments from God's hand, right? God then begins to give Moses detailed instructions on how to build a tabernacle or a sanctuary that he would live in. So God is literally telling Moses what needed to be done so that he could move in with the people. God wants to live in the middle of the camp, in a tent, like, like a nomad with human beings. He doesn't want to stay on the mountain, but would rather live in this, in this, in this place and, and, and be somehow confined to the Ark of the Covenant, which was in the most holy place of the sanctuary, behind a very thick curtain. If you read on after chapter 24 of Exodus, you'll realize that the instructions are, are incredibly detailed. They, they, they take up almost eight chapters, eight full chapters. Now, remember, Moses was on this mountain for 40 days and nights. And at some point, the people start getting anxious, right? Like, it's, it's been over a month, and this guy hasn't come back down. What's happening? What are we doing? Is he dead? Like... We don't, we don't know anything about him. We, there's no way to contact him. It, he's just been gone. And so at the end of those instructions in chapter 32 of Exodus, we have, we have a, an interesting story. In, in Exodus 32, verses 1 through 6, 
It says, when the people saw that Moses delayed to come down from the mountain, the people gathered around Aaron and said to him, come, make gods for us who shall go before us. As for this Moses, the man who brought us up out of the land of Egypt, we don't know what has become of him. And so Aaron said to them, take off the gold rings that are on the ears of your wives, your sons and your daughters, and bring them to me. So all the people took off the gold rings from their ears and brought them to Aaron. He took the gold from them, formed it in a mold, and cast an image of a calf. And they said, These are your gods, O Israel, who brought you up out of the land of Egypt. And when Aaron saw this, he built an altar before it. And Aaron made proclamation and said, Tomorrow shall be a festival to the Lord. They rose early the next day and offered burnt offerings and brought sacrifices of well-being. And the people sat down to eat and drink, and they rose up to revel. So, as God is giving Moses the stone tablets with the Ten Commandments, the people begin worshiping other gods. The people make Aaron build gods for them. A golden calf emerges. Here are your gods, says Aaron. And then they celebrate, get this, a feast to the Lord, specifically Yahweh. So, so wait, they, they ask for gods to be made. Aaron makes one golden calf, and then they celebrate a feast to Yahweh. The question is, how confused are they? Now, remember, these people have just, just recently been introduced to this God. They don't have scriptures. They don't have anything but their most recent experiences. And what they're looking for is some sort of physical evidence that God is actually with them. Now, we realize that these people don't have a clue. Did God really need a calf to ride? I think that they, they actually did want God to be with them. Otherwise, why have that feast to the Lord? But seeing is believing. And to have a tangible representation of God was, was something that they felt was necessary. Aaron knew it was wrong, but he does it anyway. He sees their need for a God and, for a God and that they can, they can actually touch. And, and the people were ignorant. They had by this time only heard the commandments spoken to them. But it seems as if they didn't really understand what, it, what they meant. So then Moses comes down the mountain, okay? And the people are feasting. God is furious because he had just made a covenant with these people. He was making plans to move into their camp. And now this. Moses asks God to change his mind about punishing the people, and God turns his anger away. And as Moses arrives at the camp, he throws the tablets with the commandments on them to the ground. They shatter, and then he confronts his brother Aaron about this calf. Moses then takes this calf. He burns it with fire. He crushes it in water and makes the Israelites drink it. And this is normally where, where I've, I've heard the story end of this golden calf. Most times. But as I kept reading, it says, Then Moses stood at the gate of the camp, and he says, Who is on the Lord's side? Come to me. And only the sons of Levi come, who would later be called the Levites. Grab your swords, says Moses. And go through the camp, and each of you kill your brother, friend, and neighbor, 
and 3,000 people died that day. Then Moses says, Today you have ordained yourselves for the service of the Lord, each of you at the cost of son or a brother, and so have brought a blessing on yourselves. And I'm not done. The next day, Moses hikes back up the mountain to make atonement for the sins of the people. And he says to God, look, the people have sinned. They they made themselves gods of gold. Forgive them. But if you won't, then blot my name out of the book that you have written. Essentially, punish me instead of them. And God says, no. Those who have sinned will be the ones that get blotted out. And the chapter ends with God sending a plague on the people for making a golden calf. And I wonder, how in the world do we come back from that one? The people break the first and second commandments. You shall not have other gods before me, and you shall not make yourself a graven image. Moses then orders the Levites to break the sixth commandment by killing people. And then Moses asks God to forgive the people, and God says, nope, I'm going to teach him a lesson. The Old Testament is, is filled with stories like these. And, and for generations, Christians have tried to say that this God is the same as the God of the New Testament. Well, is it true? The Old Testament is, is, is a product of the Hebrew religion, and their, and their culture. But some of these stories have layers of editing. Different stories and understandings of God seem to have been blended together to produce what appears to be one continuous story. The majority of biblical scholars don't believe that Moses actually wrote the first five books of the Bible or the book of Job. It's believed that the Old Testament came to its present form during a time shortly after the end of the Babylonian exile. Now, this is hundreds of years after these events. What results is, in my opinion, an imperfect document about God and humanity. It is, again, in my opinion, an imperfect revelation of God for us. God, at times, doesn't seem like himself. When we read a thus saith the Lord in the Bible, we have to understand that we're reading what someone said that God said. It's always humans writing what they perceive about God. Yet, this is all the Hebrew people had. This was their story of God. And we clearly see contradictions in the behavior of both the people and of God when we read these stories. Now, it should come as no surprise then that some of these stories are what certain atheists use to try to discredit the Bible. And to many Christians, this poses a very real problem of faith, a crisis. But faith in what? That's the real question. And I think that if this makes us uneasy, it's because we may have placed our faith in this book over faith on the God that this book testifies. Now, have we somehow made a God out of this book because we need something tangible for our God to write on? 
Now are we uncomfortable? I am. Do you now see the need for God to reveal himself to us? It's, it's like he realizes that we can't get it right. Every time he attempts to reveal himself through a prophet, he doesn't get the results he wants. God has a desire to be known by us in much the same way that we have a desire to be known by uh, ourselves. So, so God becomes human in Jesus and comes down to live among us to reveal who God really is. So, so then we have this story of the transfiguration. And, 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 and just, just pay attention. We're going to turn to Matthew chapter 17. And I want you to read it with me because the, the similarities are so, so important. And I remember when, when we're Matthew 17, but in, in the Exodus story, Moses goes up into the cloud and up in the mountain six days and the seventh day God calls him up to him. Matthew chapter 17 begins this way. It says, six days later, Jesus. Remember, Moses had taken Joshua with him. Jesus took with him Peter and James and his brother John, and he led them up a high mountain by themselves. And he, Jesus, was transfigured, transformed before them. Why? Not only was Jesus being transformed or transfigured, the word is is close to the word metamorphosis, but not only does this happen before them physically, Jesus is, is physically looking different, This is also a story of the transformation of their, of of the disciples' understanding of God. As Jesus' face shone like the sun, Matthew says, and his clothes became dazzling white, Jesus begins to take on the appearance of the fire on Mount Sinai. He is himself the glory of God that settles on the mountain. Hebrews says specifically, Jesus is the very glory of God. And and, in verse 3 of Matthew 17, it says, Suddenly there appeared to them Moses and Elijah talking with him. And not only are these two men pillars of the Jewish faith, they were among the very few men who saw God's glory pass before them. and And God allowed them to see only his back. Do you remember those stories? Both Moses and Elijah have the exact same experience with God. They're they're both in a cave or a cleft of a rock, and God makes his glory pass before them. And as this is happening, Peter says to Jesus, Lord, it's good for us to be here. Right? Hey, we're seeing amazing things. It's good for us to be here. How many times have we had a mountain-time mountaintop type of experience with God and we think it's good for us to be here right now. Not only is it good for us to be here right now, but but it really always should be this way. Peter is thinking similarly and he says, if you wish, I'll make a I'll make a house for you and one for Moses and one for Elijah. Why I want to stay up here. This is awesome. 
This is proof. I don't need to rely on, on unseen things, on an unseen God. I'm seeing him face to face. I'm seeing something happen. And, and while, while Peter is still speaking, and, and <laughs> this is great about Peter. Peter gets interrupted a lot in the, in the scriptures. While Peter is still speaking, something always happens. So I don't know if it's because he just talked so much and he never stopped. I, I don't know. right? <laughs> but while Peter is still speaking, the Bible says, suddenly a bright cloud overshadowed them. You remember the cloud from, from Exodus that overshadows Moses on the mountaintop. And from the cloud, a voice says, this is my son, the beloved. With him, I am well pleased. Listen to him. And when the disciples hear this, they fall to the ground and they are overcome by fear. Now, I don't know about you, but if I grew up hearing the story of Moses on Mount Sinai and Exodus and, and, and how when they messed up, you know, they had to pay with their own lives. This is the part where, where, where I throw myself on the ground and I'm, I'm expecting God to kill me. Because the God of Exodus is intolerant to, 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 to these mistakes. But Jesus comes and he touches them and he says to them, get up and don't be afraid. And when they look up, they saw no one except Jesus himself alone. The disciples probably had a misconception of God, likely from a very young age. It's likely that that's what led Peter to rebuke Jesus the chapter prior to that and told him that he would, when, Pete, when Jesus says, I will suffer at the hands of the religious leaders in Jerusalem and be crucified and then raise again on the third day. As Jesus then takes the disciples and they're walking down the mountain, he tells them, don't say anything about what you've seen until after my death and resurrection. And presumably, they kept the secret very well. Now, when they arrive at the, at the bottom of the mountain, in, verse, in chapter 17 of Matthew, they are met with a child who keeps having seizures and a group of disciples who can't manage to heal him. And Jesus gets upset. He, he says to them, you faithless and perverse generation, how much longer must I put up with you? How much longer must I be with you? And then Jesus goes on and heals the child by casting out the demon. Disciples ask, why could we not cast it out? And he says to them, because of your little faith. For truly, I tell you, if you have a faith the size of a mustard seed, you will say to this mountain, move from here to there, and it will move, and nothing will be impossible for you. And the parallel with Moses coming down the mountain and being upset with the people, and when he throws the tablets, with, we parallel that with Jesus being upset with his disciples as he comes down, and, and, and they're, they still don't get it, apparently. It, Jesus clarifies the issue. It's not what you did or did not do. It's the fact that you were faithless. Faith, even the size of a mustard seed, would make all the difference. In our faith experiences, we at times see the miraculous, 
the healing, the restoration, the epic moments when God steps in and we want things to stay that way. We want to stay on the mountaintop. We think it's good for us. We even seek these experiences to keep our faith alive somehow. We believe these things are proof of God. We want to stay in the spiritual high, but God's goal is not the spiritual high, but rather the spiritual low. God does not stay on the mountain. He comes down to the valley and he moves in with you. God enters into our mess. Sometimes we make the Bible a stand-in for God. We can often be guilty of idolizing it. We tend to box God into it and don't let him out. We do the same sometimes with the Sabbath and feel like one day for a couple hours is enough God for the week. We do this. We're guilty of it. But to our shortcomings, our God says, if only you had a tiny bit of faith, just the size of a grain of sand, just a tad. But you keep putting your faith in these experiences, these, these things you can touch, these tangible things. This day, your money, your, your success. Have faith in me, he says. Because all of these things have the potential to let you down. They are not real gods. Because just as easily as you can say that a healing is a proof of God, the lack thereof of this type of healing for someone else can be seen as proof that God doesn't care. That he is unfair. That he has favorites. And that is not so. This is not God's character. Do you understand what I'm saying? We can't place our faith on things, even events. We can certainly praise God and be thankful when, when amazing things happen, but these things are not what our faith should be based upon. If you do, sooner or later, we fall on our faces. Sooner or later, someone or something will shatter your faith in it and make you drink your own golden calf. You will be easily shaken, and you'll realize that your faith is really a no faith at all. If you only had faith the size of a mustard seed then you would say to this mountain move from here to there and it will move the very mount that you trusted in perhaps you don't need the mountain says Jesus you need me I'm here what needs transfiguration is not God but rather your perception of God what needs to change is is what your faith is based on. Have faith in God. Jesus says, have faith in me. So I want to remind you today of the living word. There's the word, and then there's the word. The Gospel of John puts it this way, in John chapter 1. In the beginning was the word, capital W. And the word was with God. And the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things came into being through Him. And without Him, not one thing came into being that has to become. In, his, in Him was life, and the life was the light of all people. 
The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness did not overcome it. There was a man sent from God whose name was John. He came as a witness to testify to the light, so that all might believe through him. He himself was not the light, but he came to testify to it. The true light, which enlightens everyone, was coming into the world. He was in the world, and the world came into being through him, yet the world did not know him. He came to what was his own, and his own people did not accept him. But to all who received him, who believed in his name, he gave power to become children of God, who were born not of blood or of the will of the flesh or of the will of man, but of God. And the word, capital W, became flesh and lived among us. And we have seen his glory, the glory as of the Father's only Son, full of grace and truth. John the Baptist testified to him and cried out, This was he of him whom I said, He who comes after me ranks ahead of me, because he was before me. From his fullness we have all received grace upon grace. The law indeed was given through Moses on that mountain. Grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. No one has ever seen God. It is God, the only Son, who is close to the Father's heart, who has made him known. Jesus, before ascending to heaven, promised the disciples the Holy Spirit, who would lead them into all truth. The Spirit of God is alive and active still, but we often choose the things that are tangible over the things that are unseen. I believe that God desires for us to turn our eyes to him, Amen. to the living word, yeah. to which this word testifies to, in much the same way that John the Baptist testified about Jesus. This God has come down in Jesus and lived among men, and now he has sent his Holy Spirit to be with us all at the same time, anywhere we go or where we find ourselves. Regardless of who you are, of where you come from, or what you've done, regardless of any guilt you have, any sin, regardless of your darkness and brokenness, Jesus reveals that God did not come to destroy the wicked, but that he accepts us as we are so that we would turn to him in love. Eventually, there is an ultimate judgment, but God is not coercing us to worship him because we're afraid of him. Rather, he has been generous and forgiving and was willing to rather suffer himself. We today are in a unique position to turn to God. The Spirit is at work within your hearts. It's not so much a matter of praying for the Holy Spirit. Do you understand that this is like praying for Jesus to be present when he said he already is wherever two or three are gathered? God's Spirit is already here. God's Spirit has been here all along. It's a matter of turning and listening. It's a matter of looking at Jesus' life and taking in the improved telling of God's character. Enough to be able to recognize his voice, because Jesus also said, my sheep know my voice. Interestingly, he doesn't mention that sheep being able to recite the scriptures. Rather, they know how he speaks. They know what he would say and what he wouldn't say and can recognize him from a mile away, though they've never seen him. 
So regardless of where we stand today, spiritually, emotionally, psychologically, financially, etc., Jesus is calling. Will you listen to the living word or will you ignore it in preference for the things that you can hold in your hand? For things that we can put away and leave behind. The living word wants to move in into your space into your life, into our mess. The Reverend uh, Dr. Gardner Taylor, who was a contemporary of, of Martin Luther King, he once said something to the effect of this, and, and I won't do it justice because the way he speaks is amazing, but he says something to the effect of, in the beginning was the Word, the living Word. And there has always been the Word. God is the original preacher. God is preaching through Jesus, through the prophets before that, through a burning bush, and even at the very beginning of time, when there was no one to preach to, God still preaches. When there was nothing, God turns to himself and preaches until everything that was not began straining to become. God preached and nothing became something. God's words cannot help but create. And as you encounter this living word in your lives, the living word preaches to us until everything we are, everything we're not, begins straining to become what God speaks into our lives. The living word seeks to live here with us. The living word moves in and he makes his home in with us. And he continues to speak until all of the chaos in our lives becomes beauty until all of your trauma, your hurt, your betrayal, your hopelessness, your unfaithfulness, your darkness, your brokenness, your sin, illness, depression begin to strain and become transfigured into beauty and hope and strength and love and goodness and redemption and joy and peace and love. God is still preaching and he won't quit until everything that is not has become. God's preaching not only restores, it improves upon. It excels, it exceeds our wildest imaginations. No eye has seen nor ear has heard. One day we will see the glory of the Lord. Jesus himself in majesty and all splendor and all will fall prostrate before the king. One day we will see the final result of the living word on us, of the God who moves into your lives, who is willing to live right here in this mess that we call our own. The living word becomes flesh and lives among us and continues to do so through the Holy Spirit. So I just want to remind you that God is so real, he can't be boxed in. 
And God has continually been trying to reveal himself to humanity, but also to you personally. But there may have been at times where you don't understand things and you're upset at God because you don't get what's happening. And yet the Holy Spirit is in the work of revealing God's true character in your lives. God has always been the same. What has changed is humanity's perception of him. Jesus came to do it right. And you have this gospel, this good news, that he wants to live within you. Let's pray. Father in heaven, I want to thank you for your word and for your living word. For the fact that you've never given up trying to reveal yourself to us. And in what very little we understand, Father, we ask that you lead us into all truth through your Holy Spirit, not just today, but every single day of our lives. May I, that as we walk out of this church today, that we remember that you cannot be boxed in. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.